You're listening to sermons from Church on Bayshore in Niceville, Florida. Our mission is to do whatever it takes to see people believe in Jesus, belong to God's family, and become who God created them to be, impacting the world for Christ. To learn more about our church and to find additional resources, including ways to connect, serve, and give, visit churchonbayshore.org. It is good to see you on a rainy uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving. It's really good to see anyone here on a rainy Sunday after Thanksgiving. If you're visiting with us, I'm so glad that you are here. Uh, We'd love to know who you are. You can text the word CONNECT to 850-600-6779, and one of our CONNECT team members will follow up with you this week. If you're joining us online, we'd love for you to reach out to us as well by texting CONNECT to that number, 850-600-6779. And again, our team will reach out to you this week. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and that you are excited that it is Christmas time. It starts as soon as you finish your meal on Thanksgiving. I'm just settling the debate for you since we're in church of when it starts. Um, So, man, I'm excited about the season. And as a church, we're specifically excited about this year as we try to really focus in on the season together. If you haven't already, I encourage you to stop by the welcome desk and pick up one of our uh, Advent devotional guides. This is written by members of our church. I, I think if you're going through it leading up to Christmas Day. It starts uh, a week from Monday, and so there's one for you to read uh, every day uh, leading up to that. If you're a family and you haven't already gotten one of our Christmas in a box is, I don't know, Christmas is in a box, I don't know what you said. Anyway, if you haven't got one of the boxes that are big and a lot of work went into uh, for Christmas season, stop by the boat, the children's check-in area, and grab one of those. I think we have extras if you want to bless someone else you know who may not go to church, and it might be an opportunity for their family to focus in on Christ during the this season. All right, well, today, as we start our sermon, I want you to think about the, uh, when a house or something is built. And you can't just slap up the house or you just can't slap up what you're building right away. You have to do some site work. Uh, you have to do some digging, some preparation. And so um, that's what we're going to have to do to even get to the Bible today. And then we're going to have to do some more digging before we really apply uh, the scripture that we are learning. Um, whenever I'm working on a project, even if I do the site work wrong, uh, it still doesn't go well. Hopefully that's not the case this this morning. Uh, so we're going to have to dig and then we'll be ready to talk through the meaning and give some practical application. So I, I want to start by reminding you of the context of the verses that we are looking at today. First, the scriptural context. So we're in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9 and chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians walk through the gospel, how God has adopted us into his family by his grace. And then chapters 4 and 5 turn to the call to walk in the spirit as a believer and to imitate Christ, leading to Christian unity and leading to transformation. We call this series in the latter part of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six, clarity. As Paul then gives instructions to the church in Ephesus regarding relationships that were common in their day. Greek philosopher Aristotle taught on social codes as well. And he said that there are three relationships that must be examined. The husband and wife, the father and child, and the master and slave. Today we address our last relationship, the master and slave. So that's the scriptural context. I now want to remind you of the societal context. As we open Ephesians chapter 6... We enter a world where slavery was widespread. There were an estimated 60 million slaves throughout the Roman Empire. 
It is estimated that one in five people were in slavery. 20% of people were slaves. 10 to 15% of people owned slaves. And the other 65 to 70% of people knew slaves. So if you lived in this day, you perhaps were a slave, owned a slave, worked with the slave, did life around people that were slaves. You knew many people who were slaves. 70% upwards of the society were slaves. Now, most of those people had become slaves due to debt or being captured in a battle, in war. But people could also sell themselves into slavery because they knew they wouldn't survive on their own. Some people from poor backgrounds chose to be slaves to support their family. And there were some who were kidnapped. And there were some who were sold by their parents when they were children. And that's why they were slaves. The conditions that slaves lived in in this day would range from absolute luxury, like being treated as a family member of the slave owner, to the most heinous and brutal degrading positions. While there were absolute evils that existed in the master-slave relationship in this day, we cannot think of it in the same way that we think of U.S. slavery. Slavery was not based on the color of someone's skin. It was not based on someone's nationality. And slaves in this day could become educated and they could even become free. Now, something that is amazing about this passage that we're going to read is that it even exists. Slaves are included in the instructions to the church, demonstrating that they were a part of the fellowships that would be meeting and reading the Bible. Slaves are included and directly addressed in the letters to the Roman, Galatian, Ephesian, and Colossian church. Paul is directly addressing slaves. Like with women and children, this is a cultural distinction. They were being empowered and spoken to as equals from the word of God. This is not the cultural norm. A great example of this would be in the United States of America, slave owners actually created a slave Bible to remove parts of scripture that might give slaves the inklings that God desired for them to be free. And so when we read this, we need to understand that you have these slave owners and slaves, masters and free, who were meeting together in homes or meeting together with the church and they were hearing the word of God together. Now, I have heard people ask, why didn't God just say, free all the slaves? And there's actually an objection to Christianity based on that mindset. Uh, it's not one of the major objections that we have, but it is a, an objection. In fact, if you read the Bible in F Exodus chapters 20 through 24, it gives instructions on masters and slaves. Now, something you need to understand when you read the Bible is just because God is instructing us about a situation doesn't mean he desires that situation. A great example of this would be divorce. The Bible does give instructions on divorce and on how to handle divorced people. But it also says, Jesus said this, that God's desire is that two are one and that they not be separated. Yet he says that God gave instructions because of our hardness of heart. So there are instructions on some things because we live in a fallen world, but they're not God's desire in the first place. Here's how I know that this isn't God's desire. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, enslavers, 
that's those who enslave people, who put people into slavery, are listed along with other attitudes or uh, practices that God condemns. Look at 1 Timothy 1.10. The sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so God does not view enslaving people as his will or his desire. Yes, Christians have participated in slavery, but not because it was a Christian thing. It was a cultural thing, and they tried to justify it as Christian. I think we will look back on this generation's embracing of sexual perversion in a similar way, where essentially you see a group of people who claim to Christ and ignore what the Scripture has to say or twist what the Scripture has to say to do what they want. A simple study of history would actually show you that the strongest anti-slavery movements were indeed Christian. The civil rights movement in our country was tied to the principles of Scripture. Now, what you and I need to understand about this context here is that society was built around the master-slave relationship. Economy, infrastructures, people's survival was built around it. And so if they just said, it is a command to free all people, then many of those people who would be freed would die or they would end up in bad circumstances. So this is the world that they live in in Ephesus. And it would be their world for some time. And there has been some ones who have fit into a similar role throughout most societies in history. Paul is not endorsing or condemning all types of slavery, but he's focusing on the person regardless of their circumstances. He is addressing how Christians should live out their faith regardless of their situation. This is the foundation for understanding our text today. Our text is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, and I will read that now. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that you guard against us seeing it as archaic and dismissing it. But I also pray that you guard against us making light of it and trying to make it all relevant to our specific situation. And that God, through the power of your spirit, you would illuminate what your spirit originally inspired. Help us to understand its meaning and help us to apply its principles and help us to appreciate its power. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So more site work is needed before we build the house. The ESV uses the word bondservants in an attempt to help the reader understand that this isn't slavery the way the typical Westerner thinks of slavery. However, the word doulos is the word for slave or servant that is used in most English translations. Paul tells those who are in a position of slave to obey their earthly master. 
Paul writes so incredibly out of a heart that understands who God is and who we are in relationship to him. Notice, he doesn't simply say master. He says earthly master. Even though he is calling them to obey these masters with fear and trembling, with reverence and respect, he views these masters as inferior to their ultimate master. He does instruct the slaves to obey them with fear and trembling, words that we no longer associate with submission and obedience. But their context would very much understand a healthy fear here, just like those words being used in the marriage relationship and in the child relationship would bring about a a submission to authority and a respect for the authority that God sets up. Paul also says to obey with a sincere heart. Throughout the scripture, the Bible speaks against being double-minded, meaning having two intentions, being a person who's saying one thing and doing another, who's living you know, one way and then living another. He's saying that rather there should be a simplicity. There should be a genuineness as you would serve and obey Christ. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the backdrop of all these relationships that God places us in, that we are in submission to Christ. And he goes on to define the submission in verse six and seven. He says, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. He is telling them, this should not be out of a motivation to possibly change the way they treat you. This should not be out of a motivation that someone will take notice and reward you. This has nothing to do with pleasing people. This is all about obeying God. This is about being a servant of God. Paul is saying that a slave should devote their whole heart and service to their master. But the master he has in mind is not their earthly master. It is their heavenly master, their ultimate master. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, a text that we have referenced a few times during this series because of its similarities. I'm going to read verses 32 through, excuse me, verses 22 through 25. It says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Here's what God is saying to bondservants. He's saying, fear the Lord. Do what you're doing out of fear and respect for God, and do it with all your heart. Take all that God has put in you and give that all to the place that God has put you. Knowing that the inheritance that you're living for is inheritance that God has promised you. And remember that it is Christ who you are serving. And remember that God is not partial and that God is just. Paul knows that while the earthly master may not always see and be just and value the slave for what they're worth, God always sees them, and their true master takes care of them, and he is prepared to bless them immeasurably, and it is out of gratitude for their ultimate master that they are to obey and work 
in a way that pleases the earthly master. He says in verse eight in our text in Ephesians, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Klein Snodgrass says, God sees all good deeds. The focus of the text is not on what kind of master you serve, but the kind of person you should be. Most of them probably had masters that were pretty good to them as they're being read Paul's instruction from them or with them. But for the slaves who would come to faith in Christ that may end up serving a different master one day, the call is still relevant. Paul's goal is for the way that slaves live their life to point to Jesus. Let's read another passage that address, is addressed to slaves by Paul in Titus 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, Bondservants are, be to, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, and they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In a similar spirit, he calls them not to be argumentative. Something that is important for them to hear and many of us to hear is even though we have questions and issues and concerns about what we're being asked to do, if it's not going to cause harm to ourselves or others, sometimes we just need to do it. And he says it not pilfering, which is a term that unless you regularly act out vaudeville skits, I don't think you know the definition of, um, but you guys are smart, so maybe you do. But since the person next to you doesn't know it, I'll explain. It means stealing and usually in small amounts. So Paul's telling slaves, don't steal from your master. Now that seems common sense for a Christian, right? But it's not for two reasons. For, for one, if you're a slave, you probably have a lot less than your master. It's almost certain that there's a gap between you and the person you work for. And as our discontentment and jealousy grows, it becomes east easier to justify stealing to blatantly take possessions and money from them, specifically in small amounts. Another reason that this isn't that common sense, and we need to understand why Paul is saying, is that some who are slaves are actually more of a hired uh, servant. It's more of an agreement that they made to take care of their family. They would have a place to live, and they would be, you know, at the will of this master, and they would be paid for. And if they're being asked to do work, their master isn't supervising everything that they would do on the farm or wherever it may be, and they're not doing the work, then they're stealing. Paul says, your master is Jesus. And show good faith in everything. And by doing so, you adorn or you put on Christ. Paul's goal, if you didn't hear anything else about all this, is for the way that a slave lives their life, that it would point to Jesus. That's the goal for all believers. And Paul speaks to Christian masters as well. Look at verse nine. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. To apply mutual submission here, was a starting, startling redefinition of authority. In their culture, the master was superior. The freed was superior. And he says, stop threatening. 
He says, no more threatening that you will cause physical harm and no more causing physical harm to them. No more unjust consequences. Knowing you live in a society that is unjust and is favorable to the freed over the slaved, no more threatening that you're going to do something that would infringe upon their freedom more, restrict their freedom more, or extend their term as a slave. And no more psychological threatening. You see, there's two things you can do with power. You can collect it and leverage it for your benefit, and that's what the world tells us to do. Or you can leverage it for something greater, and that's what Jesus did. What we see in Jesus is he gives away his power, trusting in the Father, and gives his life up for others. And Paul reminds slave owners, God is both of your master. You are both bondservants of God, of Christ Jesus. And so for the Christian community, slave owners may have been pleased with the scripture encouraging this kind of service as unto the Lord, but at the same time, they lost control. For slaves now had a higher allegiance than to their owners. Now I'm about to get into application for us today. But before I do, I want to reiterate the meaning of this passage because this passage has often been taught and twisted to solely apply to employees who work an agreed-upon wage and can freely choose to remain in that job if they want. And while there is application, and I'm going to get to that, to those of us who might work for the U.S. government or that are in a job that we feel trapped in because of our bills, it is an incredible mistake to read this passage solely through the lens of Americans who think God's purpose in our life is to make every one of our material blessings and desires come true. And I think we need to pause. And I think we need to think about our life and the perspective of slavery. Few things reveal the depth of human depravity as much as slavery does. Treating those made in the image of God as a commodity to be bought and sold. Men and women intimidated, threatened, and harmed if not found to be benefiting their so-called master. Children ripped from their families like a litter of puppies. Growing up in the USA, it is hard not to be affected by images, videos, and speeches of what took place in our country for years and years, where people were treated like second and third class citizens because of the color of their skin, lured away under false pretenses with promises of hope and prosperity only to experience hardship and oppression. And I think that this fuels the application because we understand the true freedom we have today. That is not a freedom that everyone who has ever lived has had. That is not a freedom that is to be taken for granted. And as Christians, we ought to think, what can I do? How can I leverage my freedom for Christ when we have had brothers and sisters who have been faithful to Jesus Christ in the midst of a life we could never imagine for ourselves and our children? And so we ought not to dismiss that as we think about 
what the scripture tells us today. So let me go through five things that uh, we can live in response to, and then we'll look at some other passages uh, that support and complement them. So uh, we're starting to build the house now. Number one, the only hierarchy in the kingdom of God is King Jesus and all of God's children. The only hierarchy in the kingdom of God is King Jesus and all of God's children. So when you think like, who's worth more, who's superior, it's Jesus and the rest of us. It's King Jesus and the rest of us. We might fill roles, but they're under the authority of the only one with authority, Jesus. He said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. So it's Jesus and all of God's children. Again, what is so amazing about this passage and other passages in the Bible that include slaves is that they aren't being seen as slaves. They are being seen as Christians, as equals. Life is about identity. We know this, that life is about identity because we can see the struggle for identity played out right before us in our media, in movies, in television, in music. I think one of the first times that I was aware of this identity crisis that many people are having in our world was when I was in high school and I watched the movie Fight Club. And I'm talking about Fight Club. The number one rule about Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club, so I'm breaking that rule. But um, in that movie, what you have is you have Edward Norton, who's the main character, and he works, you know, kind of uh, a a nine-to-five job. Uh, in, in, you know, in the city, kind of living just kind of what he sees as a mundane, mundane life. And he encounters this guy who's played by Brad Pitt, who's kind of uh, the opposite of that. And, and he uh, does whatever he wants to do. And he, he kind of, again, not living a great godly life by any means, but he's kind of living the opposite of kind of how Edward Norton has been living his life. And um, what we find out at the end of the movie, sorry if you're planning on watching this tonight or something, what we find out at the end of the movie is that uh, Edward uh, Edward Norton's character just projected, imagined this Brad Pitt character was really him. And so he was, you know, having this identity crisis and he was doing all these things. And, you know, that that was one of the first times I realized, like, people are really struggling to find themselves. And we see that now very clearly because of social media. That everyone is looking for identity. You see this among the middle class who want to stand out. You see this among the powerful and influential who have to keep it up. But here's the thing we really need to think about. It's much harder to feel like you are much worth much when people don't think you're worth much. And it's hard to think there is much hope when the door is continually shut on you. And so when we read this passage, we need to understand that this is how slaves would think. But what Jesus shows us and the writers of the Bible tell us is that Paul doesn't see them as slaves and masters. He sees them in Christ. Galatians 3, 27 through 29. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ, then you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you've ever listened to the slave songs from our country called spirituals often, they sing about this true perspective. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home, longing for the day of God's mercy, God's justice, and God's deliverance. It's hard to imagine that there's a more important perspective than slave and free. 
It's hard to think about our eternal freedom in this way often, but it is more important than our earthly freedom. Our eternal identity is more important than our earthly identity. This is a shared perspective in the early church who would face persecution and death for their faith, not blessing in the way we define it. But it also, when we think about it this way, it shapes how we view people because there is no partiality with him. And so if we are down and out, we understand that our circumstances don't define how valuable we are to God. And if we have influence, then we understand that there's one king, Jesus, and everybody I look at is created in the image of God and they are God's child to be valued. Secondly, and this is a quote from Klein Snodgrass, no relationship is merely a relation. It is a context for relating to Christ. No job is merely work. It is a context for serving Christ. One of the distinctive things about the Christian approach to work is that while the world sees money excuse me, work as a necessary evil to get money. And when you have enough money, you quit the evil. We recognize that God put us in an earth filled with resources that we are to develop for the benefit of others. Our lives and work are connected. God uses our work for his glory. God gave Adam a job before the fall. It's a part of how he designed us. Abraham Kuyper, who was the former prime minister of the Netherlands and who, in my opinion, went a little off the deep end, was, wrote a lot of good stuff about society as Christians. And he says, there is not a square inch in the domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And so as Christians, we want to redeem everything for God and his purposes. There's a, there's a Christian rapper named Zanti, and he has a song called Hard Work, God First. And I realize a lot of you grew up um, pretty traditional. And so when you think of Christian rap, like you think you just hear the music and you don't think, you know, it's that edifying or maybe you think it's shallow. And I'm just telling you, Christian rap isn't like God likes to be called Big Papa or anything like that. Like it has real good, deep lyrics. And so here are the lyrics in this song, some of the lyrics in this song. They try to mess with your mind or something. They try to play with your grind or something which looking at this crowd, grind is like when you're really working hard at something, okay? (laughs) They want to see you back off your calling. They try to mess with your shine or something. For lack of a vision, then people could perish. Commit to the climb even when it hurts. Only two things in life you can control is how you spend time and how hard you work. So hard work, God first. That's our life. We're going to put our heart into everything that God places before us, and we're going to do it for him. I've had or tried to continually instill in our kids that they do what their mother and I ask, then they can discuss the concerns with why. I know that we aren't to be mindless sheep, but we have gone overboard in our culture today. It should not be the pattern of how Christians conduct ourselves. We should be a light to our bosses of how well we serve them and we do not argue with them. However, this in case is not the fact many times with Christians because we act like we're the most entitled. I've said that Christians have this belief that God is for me and we take that to mean that he's gonna give me all the things I want and I should get them no matter what and no one's gonna stand in my way. And that can be dangerous because even though our consequences put us in a position, we feel like we shouldn't have to face them anymore because we're free in Christ. You need to understand that there's a difference between leniency and grace. 
They're not the same thing. Grace means God loves you and you're of great value and I'll treat you with respect no matter what, but there are consequences to our actions and expectations of us in our work. The mentality that only God is my boss and I'm gonna make sure they know it, whether it be my spouse or people in my family or my work, I would just say this, if God is your boss, then why are you in charge and not him? Why are you living for the flesh and not for him? And I've mainly dealt with the employee relationship, but what about when you're the leader? Why aren't you serving him? And so I know there's a lot of questions here, but it ultimately comes down to one, regardless of where you are right now. Do you look at people and think, how can I serve them? Or do you look at them and think, how can they serve me? Jesus said this in Mark chapter 10, verse 42 through 45. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I hope that's what people see in us. Number three, when you show others that you trust God, it shows others they can trust God. I'm going to read second, or excuse me, Titus 2, verse 10 again. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul's point is that even the slave's goal should be that others see the teaching of God and that it's attractive to them. The teaching of God is seen as attractive through a submissive servant. And so we might have a bad boss or someone who has influence over us who treats us unfairly, but we cannot lose sight of the goal. And when we're in charge, we might be taken advantage of and unappreciated. We cannot lose sight of the goal. The effect of individual Christian behavior on unbelievers cannot be underestimated. In a marriage, in a relationship with your children or your parents and with your coworkers, with your neighbors and with the people who go to church with. Look, life is full of inefficiency, ineptitude, and inconvenience. Go to the grocery store, and there are people that have no idea how to act in society in the grocery store, and they take forever to do the most basic task. If you're like, no, they don't, it's you, and we're all waiting on you, okay? If you drive on your vehicle, you're like, man, we need to take a test every year to learn how to drive again because people are forgetting it. You work with people who don't meet the qualifications of the job, who don't know how to do what they're doing. You go to church with people, staff and volunteers who seem to forget basic instincts. Listen, this is life. If you expect that to never be life, stop because that is gonna be your life. But listen, the question is, who are you going to be? And how are you going to treat people? And even when, listen, when people waste your time and your energy, God is always a good steward of your time. He is always a good steward of your time. And it's about serving him and being on mission for him and being for his glory and not always the people around you. Number four, Godliness with contentment is great gain. I personally read out of the New American Standard Bible, um, but I don't teach out of it because there'd be a lot of words I have to explain. Um, but I just think the NASB 
says these verses better. So I'm going to read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6-10 out of the NASB. Here's what it says. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The answer to this really is contentment. It's being grateful that your heart is beating and that you're breathing and that you didn't even have to think about that. It's being grateful for what you do have and how God can use you. I think this is why Paul urged the Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, did you catch that? He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. He, he's saying, don't complain, period. I hear a lot of complaining from believers about our family, about our work, about the restaurants we go to. I, if you go on social media, people complain. There's a group out there, please don't join it, called Concerned Citizens of Niceville. And one time a guy said on there, and I just, this was beautiful. He said, look, if I ever have a bad experience in this town, I'm, you guys are all going to be the first to know about it. Because people just like to complain. I hear, I know, I'm complaining about complaining right now, okay? I complain. But look at what Paul says in verse 14. He says, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's saying if you are content and not a complainer, you're going to shine as a light in the world. That sounds kind of easy, right? It is easy for light to shine in darkness. But godliness with contentment is great gain. All right, last point, and most important point, life-changing point. Jesus became a slave so that we would become free from the oppression of sin. Jesus became a slave so that we would become free from the oppression of sin. This is at the core of who a Christian is. And these slaves who are reading this passage, all there for different reasons, who are reading this passage about how God wants to use them in their position, were driven first and foremost by the reality that Christ had let go of his godliness. He had became submissive. That resulted in his unjust death. And he did that for us. And so what he's asking us to do is for him, is out of response to who he is. And that is what fuels how we view people, regardless of the circumstances we're in and how they might treat us. 
This applies in all these relationships that we're in. We're talking about clarity. And if there's anything that's clear about all this, it's that we are serving Jesus in our family, in our workplace, wherever we might be. And when people treat us the way we shouldn't be treated. My friend Thad Pelt, he and his wife Eileen now live in Pensacola. I've referenced them before. Um, Thad and Eileen started dating. Thad is an African-American. Eileen is not. Um, Eileen's parents had no problem with them dating, but Eileen's grandparents did. And her grandfather would not let her boyfriend, who she was dating for some time, come into his house because of the color of his skin. And so he would have to bring her there, bring her by for something. He would sit out in the car for 20, 30 minutes, however it might be. So finally, as things got pretty serious and it got to be obvious they were going to get married, something happened and eventually the grandfather said he can come in the house. And even though he knew the things that had been said about him simply because of the color of his skin, he walked in the house, walked up to her grandfather, shook his hand and said, thank you for having me over. And he said, I don't know what made him the way he was, but I knew who I am and who Christ has called me to be. That's what guides every moment and every role of our life, who Christ is, who he says we are, and who he has called us to be. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I come to you now in this moment incredibly grateful for the freedom that we have. God, the truth is that has not been the case for many people. And God, I forgive you. I ask for your forgiveness for the ways that I, that we let our freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. When you said we're called to freedom, not for that, but to serve one another. God, I pray that you would help us to view the people in front of us the way you view them. God, I pray that you would help us to view ourselves the way you view us. God, I pray that you would help us to always remember you gave up. You came down. You were nailed to the cross. And it was for us. May that humble us. And may the fact that you rose from the grave embolden us to trust in your reward. I pray for those that are in a marriage where they're treated unjustly, in a home where they're treated unjustly, with family members that treat them unjustly, who are in a bad situation at work. I'm going to pray for your wisdom. And I pray for the opportunity to show you in whatever decisions are made. God, guide us 
Use us, stir us in Jesus' name, amen.